Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right. Uh, thank you, Pastor Parker, for the invitation to be with you guys this morning. Uh, it's always good to be with you. Uh, my wife and I love being here with you guys, and it's a privilege, as always, to bring the word. Uh, today, we're going to look at Psalm 2, so if you would stand for the reading of God's word, and as you stand, we stand because this is, if you can stand, you don't have to stand, I should say. But if you can stand for the reading of God's word, uh, this is the reliable, it's the trustworthy, it's the clear, it's uh, for our life and for our godliness, it's a binding word. Psalm 2 says this, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Would you pray with me now? Lord, uh, as we look at this great text before us, now we are reminded that first and foremost, we have a great need of you. We have a need of you to understand what your word is going to say to us now about the king who reigns over all and in all things, who upholds the cosmos by the word of his power, who sustains our life and very breath that we have and helps order our very cells of our bodies and helps us to function. So Lord, I pray that you would open ears and hearts to the truth of Christ the King, but that you would also take this word and comfort the hearts of your people, that we would know for certainty that you are the beginning from the end and everywhere in between that you rule the cosmos and that you order our lives according to the hand of providence and that you are at work turning what is meant for evil and turning it around and using it for our good. And so, Lord, I also pray that you would take this word and that you would drive it home into those who do not yet, are, are not yet, uh, have not yet had their eyes open to hear Christ that you would bring them to life everlasting in your name through the preaching of your word. We thank you, Lord, for this time and pray that you would use it in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would be seated, please. Thank you. Well, the big idea, the, 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 the point that I hope that you'll take away from our time together is this. God has decisively, he's powerfully, he's providentially set his son on the throne to end the world's rebellion that began in the Garden of Eden. And so all who flee to the righteousness that is found only in Christ can find peace amid the raging of the nations in Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king. We know that in our world today, we see an ascendant of China, We see a raging North Korea. We see wars and rumors of wars. And and not only do we see this on the world stage, but we see matters in our own country. 
the banking crisis, and on and on. And, and then there's issues in our own hearts, maybe marital issues, relationship issues, work issues, personal issues. And we wonder, is the Lord perhaps asleep at the wheel? It might not be immediately obvious to us that the cause of Christ is winning in the world or in our neighborhoods and in our lives or in the world. We live in a world that openly opposes God in big and small ways. And we need to ask a couple of questions. What should we think about this? Will God do anything about this? In fact, we may even wonder if the Lord has changed his mind and is disinterested in the creation that he made. According to the State of Theology, which is published every other year in conjunction with Lifeway Ministries and uh, yeah, Lifeway Research, I should say, and Ligonier Ministries, about 40 or so percent of professing evangelicals would agree with the statement that I just said that the Lord is disinterested in the creation that he made. And yet what we're going to see today is that God has a word for us. He has promises. He has truth to teach us. And that Hebrews 13, 5 and 9 very clearly tell us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so what that tells us is that God's word is true and that God will always act consistently with who he has revealed himself to be. And what, so what this passage, what this chapter of Psalm 2 is going to teach us is that God has powerfully, he's decisively set his son on the throne to end this world's rebellion. This uprising began when Adam and Eve, our parents, first sinned in the garden. And yet, we know that God will not let this rebellion go on. He has raised up a king with authority over every person in every nation. And now, if you remember the last time I was here, it's okay if you don't. But Psalm 2, it continues the the contrast between the righteous and the wicked that began in Psalm 1. In fact, the first two books of this psalm serve as an introduction to the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 begins with, blessed is the man, and Psalm 2 ends with, blessed are all. And what this does is it suggests, these bookends suggest that the two psalms are to be read together. Augustine, that early church father, called Psalms the singer, called Jesus the singer of the psalms, and that is explicitly true of Psalm 2, since this psalm is not only about Jesus, but Jesus himself speaks in it. Now, the specific, what we call messianic psalms, they're not many. They include this psalm, Psalm, also Psalm 22, Psalm 45, Psalm 72, and Psalm 110. But even among this small number of messianic psalms, this psalm stands out because of where it's placed as the second psalm in the book of Psalms. Now, in Psalm 2, we're going to see that the way of sinners in Psalm 1-1, it becomes more, this person becomes more specific and more serious. In a violent insurrection against the God of heaven and the king he has set in authority to rule the world. On the other hand, we're going to see that the, the righteous man of Psalm 1 becomes more specific and even more clear as well. He is none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the one who inherits a throne, and God has given him complete authority over all nations. We can be honest here that the world hates God's anointed king, Jesus, but the righteous embrace him and are blessed. And so the psalm opens with, the two psalm, first two psalms open with two ways to live. Either we can take refuge in Christ, or we can refuse Christ. Psalm 2 is trying to convince us that it is foolish and it is futile to fight against Christ. For Christians, this is a message of hope for us in a world that desperately needs it. We need the encouragement. The world is lined up against God, and yes, Jesus will conquer all the nations and all the peoples. And what this psalm is going to tell those of you that might not be saved or you might listen to this later or watch this later, if you're not a Christian, God is going to appeal to you through this psalm. 
And what his message is, is be wise, be reasonable. You cannot fight against God. You need to bend your knee to Jesus and honor him with joy today. Because true blessing doesn't come from being free to live your own life for your own pleasure in your own way. True blessing comes from following Jesus Christ. It is by taking refuge in Jesus that the judgment awaiting the wicked can be avoided. And so today in our text, what we're going to see in Psalm 2, 1 through 3, is the raging and the plotting of the nations. In Psalm 2, 4 through 6, we're going to see the judgment of the king. In Psalm 2, 7 through 9, we're going to see the identity and the mission of the Lord. And then finally, in Psalm 2, 10 through 12, we're going to see a warning to leaders of the world and a blessing for the righteous. So the first point in your bulletin is this, from Psalm 2, 1 through 3, the raging and the plotting of the nations. Point one in your bulletin is the raging and the plotting of the nations. Psalm 2, 1 through 3 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. If we could see the face of this psalmist, he, he would be shaking his head in disbelief. Don't they understand? Don't they know that they can't win? Why are they raging? Why are they scheming against God? And the, word, the verse 1 uses the word plot. This is the same word that was used in Psalm 1-2 with the word meditate. And it means to murmur or to talk under your breath. You see the righteous murmur God's word, but the wicked murmur about rebellion. And we see that today on the news, on podcasts, in magazines, all over the place. The evidence is overwhelming. All people from every, every continent, from every country, have rebelled against the Lord. Every people group, from every social class, from every vocation, have set themselves against the knowledge of God and against his Messiah. This rebellion is worldwide because it's rooted in the sin nature that we inherited from Adam. The word anointed is the word Messiah in the Hebrew and Christ in the Greek. And in ancient Israel, kings and prophets and other leaders were anointed with oil to show that they were set apart for the work of God. Now this is but we need to understand that this psalm could only apply to one king in all of history, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what this means is this is not an armed insurrection in the ancient Near East against David or any of the other kings after him. Psalm 2 describes the rebellion of the human heart against God, and that means that this psalm is a prophecy that's going to point us forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, this psalm, Psalm 2, is one of the most quoted psalms about Jesus in reference to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. We could spend a long time looking at every single one of them, but we don't have enough time to do that because there's so many. So here's a sampling. When God the Father spoke from heaven at Jesus' baptism, he used the words of Psalm 2-7, this is my beloved son, in Matthew 3-17. In the most extensive New Testament reference, the first two verses of Psalm 2 were cited by the earliest Christians in a thanksgiving prayer following the release of Peter and John by the Sanhedrin in Acts 4-24-27, which says, Sovereign Lord, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, saying, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. And in the next verse, they identify this rebellion with the conspiracy of Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel against Jesus. Paul preached Christ's resurrection from Psalm 2 in Acts 13.33, which says, This he fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. The author, applied, uh, the author of Hebrews, I should say, applied Psalm 2 to Jesus twice, saying in Hebrews 1.5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. And again, so also, so Christ 
also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said in Hebrews 5.5, you are my son, today I become your father. In fact, Psalm 2 is referred to in Revelation several times. Revelation 1.5 says, Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Revelation 2.27 says, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Revelation 12.5 says, she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And on and on we could go with this. But the point is, is since Jesus is God's son, those who rebel against him are rebelling against none other than God himself. And our text in Psalm 2 says that this rebellion in verse 2 is against the Lord and against his anointed. The kings want to break their bonds and their cords, verse 3 of Psalm 2 says, meaning their chains of obedience to God and to his Christ. And the point here is you cannot be for God and against Christ, they're not, they cannot be separated. If you are against Christ, you are against God. If you ignore Christ, you ignore God. 1 John 2, 3 says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. But we need to be specifically clear here. The world has not set itself against the idea of God, just in general, in fact, people around the world are, are religious. Ecclesiastes 3.14 tells us that God has set eternity in our hearts. Everyone is a theologian, and so everybody has a theology. The problem is, by nature, we are against the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. This explains exactly why every human being across the globe is offended by the God of the Bible and why they rage against him. Kings and leaders in the ministry and the life of Jesus rose up against him. Herod fought against Christ when Jesus was just a baby. The leaders of Israel plotted to kill Jesus, Matthew 12 and Matthew 26 tell us. In fact, the early church I mentioned saw that Psalm 2 was fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so when they were persecuted, they applied the words of Psalm 2 to Jesus' prayer in Acts 4, 24 through 28, which says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God, saying, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the, why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Now, you might be thinking, well, when did this rebellion end? This rebellion didn't even end with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Saul of Tarsus was traveling to Damascus to put Christians in chains when Jesus appeared to him in Acts 9.4, which says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so when people today persecute Christians, they are raging and they are fighting against Jesus. Near the end of his reign, Emperor Diocletian, who reigned from 284 to 305 AD, set up two massive pillars in Spain, declaring victory over Jesus Christ. The inscription on the pillars read, Diocletian, Jehovian, Maximum, Herclesis, Caesar, Augusti, for having adopted Galerius in the east, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ, for having extended the worship of the gods. Remember that point because we're going to come back to it here in a few minutes. Now, point two in your notes is the judgment of the king. Psalm 2, 4 through 6 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, remember the statistic that I read from the State of Theology, published by Ligonier Ministries in conjunction with, you know, Lifeway Research. 40% of professing Christians suggest that God has changed his mind about them about the world. But what we see here in this text is God is 
not in heaven wringing his hands. He doesn't have a need to call his generals. He doesn't need to hurry into a fortified bunker. Now we see three biblical references to the Lord laughing, and they're all in the Psalms. Psalm 2.4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Psalm 37.13 says, But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Psalm 59.8 says, But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Now, when a creature who's made in the image and likeness of God shakes his fist at the creator, it's so ridiculous, we have to be honest, that laughter really is the only response. But we also need to say that God laughs because this uprising doesn't surprise him in the least. The nations rage, but God doesn't have to rage. He doesn't have to set himself up like the kings do in the least. The nations rage, but God doesn't take counsel with anyone. He doesn't need to plot. In fact, God, our text says, doesn't even bother to stand up. He sits in the heavens. Isaiah 40, 15 says, But behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like the fine dust. And so we can understand then that God's laughter humiliates his enemies. He holds them, our text says, in derision. God is not laughing because the world's rebellion is some kind of silly joke. God takes sin seriously. Because in our disobedience, we spit on his glory. We drag his name through the mud. We ruin his world. We harm men and women who bear the image of God. And we war against God's son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And part of God's triumph is holding his enemies up to public disgrace. And this is what we see in the death of Jesus. Colossians 2.15 says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. So God's mocking laughter is part of his judgment on sinners. And now with all the nations gathered for war, God is going to open his mouth. He is going to speak. Verses two, Psalm 2, 5 through 6 says, And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's word stands firm in the midst of the nation's hatred, their gathered strength, the wisdom of their technology, their advancements, their military prowess, their plotting, their rage. We're talking about the God who made the heavens and the earth, as you've been considering on Wednesdays. Genesis 1-3 says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God established his king with his word, the same powerful word that spoke creation into being. I just mentioned technology, but think with me for a second. Think of all the combined Technology, all the many advancements throughout all the industries and all of everything. And think about even today on social media with the rise of influencers and so on and so forth. Everybody is clamoring for power and attention and prestige. But what we need to understand is all the power in the world will not stop God's word. That is a profoundly encouraging thing. We see this in the Bible. Pharaoh tried to destroy the Israelites, but he ended up caring for Moses and educating him in his own palace. Haman tried to plot and destroy the Jews, but he was hung on the gallows he built for another. The leaders of Israel put Jesus to death, and they thought they destroyed him. And yet God used the cross to triumph over sin and to save his people. Paul and Silas were beaten, and they were thrown in jail in Acts 16, and through their suffering, that jailer was saved. The emperor Diocletian, who I mentioned just a minute ago, he set up pillars proclaiming victory over Christ, and seven years later, seven years later, Constantine came to the throne, and Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Oh, don't you see that God's word stands forever. 
And that Jesus is still God's king by the strength of an unbreakable word. God has spoken definitively, sufficiently, authoritatively, clearly in his word, and his word will stand. It will accomplish that which it aims to do. He has set Jesus Christ as king over all creation. Now, the third point that we're going to consider in Psalm 2, 7 through 9 is the identity and the mission of the Lord. The identity and mission of the Lord is the third point in your bulletin. Psalm 2, 7 through 9 says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so what we see in this third section of the psalm is the Messiah is going to speak for himself. God's king is, is, is not the strong, silent type. God, the king, is a preacher. And we know that when an army officer or some military officer goes and takes a new command, as in a brigade or, a, or, a, or at a base, he brings orders with him from his superiors to show that he has the right to be in charge. If a man comes... Without orders, he is breaking the chain of command, and he is acting on his own authority. And so what we see from that is Christ is going to repeat the decree of God to prove that he has legitimate right to rule the world in which we live. And so we're going to see in verses 7 through 9 this identity, the destiny, and the authority of the king. Now first, the identity of the king. Psalm 2.7 says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Decree refers to a divine determination. As you read scripture, what you're going to see is the plan and the purposes and the counsel of God. And what that means is God has plans and those plans or what he purposes will come to pass. Psalm 33.11 says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. In fact, these plans are so universal that they govern all the affairs of nature, of history, of individual lives, including sin and salvation. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And so we can say that God's plans are as universal as his knowledge is from beginning to end, from distant past through all of the future. God's plans are eternal. His plans are unchanging. That is profoundly encouraging in the midst of our own difficulty, in the midst of our own challenges. In fact, John 16.33 says that in this world, remember this is to his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. And don't we need hope in the midst of our difficulty? Don't we need help in the midst of our challenges, in the midst of our lives and the world in which we live? And so this is a profoundly, profoundly encouraging, helpful thing, the character of God revealed in his word to us. And when Christ declares that he is God's son, he identifies himself in two ways. As God's son, he is connected horizontally to his people and vertically to God. As the son of God, Christ identifies himself vertically in relationship to God. As a son, he is close to God. He knows God as a son knows his father. He is subordinate to God. He obeys as a son obeys his father. He represents God as a son represents his father. He shares God's life as a son has life from his father. And because he is God's son, he is the legitimate heir to the throne of God. As God's son, Christ shares the very life and the very being of God himself. And as God's son, Christ is connected horizontally to the people of God. In the Old Testament, God called Israel his son. And when God sent Moses to Pharaoh, he instructed him in Exodus 4, 22 through 23, It says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. 
And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God called the whole nation of Israel his son throughout the law and the prophets. Being God's son was at the heart of what it meant for Israel to be his people. And the important point here, with all that said, is the king is God's son because he represents all of God's people, all the people. And so when God promised David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever, God said in 2 Samuel 7.14, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. God's relationship with his people would be focused on their representative, the king. And when Christ announces that he is God's son, he is claiming to represent all of God's people as their king. It's a horizontal Point, and this reality we must understand is at the heart of our salvation if you are in Christ. He embodies us in himself so completely that his obedience can be counted as our obedience. His death can be counted as our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His unending life is our life. We are saved because Jesus is the Son of God, our representative. And so when Christ proclaims God's decree, his divine determination, saying, you are my son today, I've begotten you, in Psalm 2.7, he's, repl- he's proclaiming his relationship with God and with his people. And yet we can say more because Jesus became Lord in a higher sense by virtue of his resurrection. And so he is by resurrection, his resurrection, according to Romans 1.4, declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. And so God's statement in Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is applied to the day of the resurrection of Christ, which we just celebrated on Easter in Acts 13-33, which says, his he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it's written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And scripture also calls Jesus the son of God by virtue of his supernatural birth in Luke 135, which says, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the children will be born, will be called holy son of God. As with lordship, Jesus' sonship describes his eternal nature revealed progressively through the different, through the different events of biblical history. And so we can understand then that Jesus was son before he was even sent into the world. And as with lordship, Jesus' sonship is prominent in the confession-like passages of the New Testament. For example, Peter's confession in Matthew 16, 16 says, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus' own confession before the Sanhedrin in Matthew 26, 63 through 64 says, but Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is also an example of this as we see the Father's confession of a son in Mark 1.11, which says, and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. In Mark 9, 7, which says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. The New Testament takes Psalm 2, 6 through 7, and applies this to Jesus as the eternal divine Son in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, which says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is a radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand on the majesty on high. And now in Psalm 2.8, we're going to see the, the, the destiny of Christ, the destiny of Christ. Psalm 2.8 says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You see, God promised to give Jesus the farthest corners of the world as his inheritance. His destiny, in other words, is to rule the planet. And so we can say that this is a dialogue between the Father and the Son. And the Son speaks the Father's divine determination 
in which he promised the son a reward for his obedience, which is what we see in Psalm 2, 7 through 8, which says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. We just celebrated recently Good Friday, and this even brings Good Friday to the forefront for us in that in the prophecy of the suffering servant, Isaiah comments on the terms of this agreement with respect to, uh, to obedience and reward in Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, which says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied." By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And therefore, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The father commissioned the son to lay down his life as a sacrificial offering, and he promised him the reward of an inheritance and of the nations populated with his spiritual offspring, whom he would declare not guilty and of the enjoyment of the Lord's prosperity. Now, after uh, Paul mentions Christ's obedience unto death, he states in Philippians 2.9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And as a result of his obedience to this eternal commission, the Father rewards the Son with the exalted title, Lord, at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the one crucified as a slave and that he has become master over all. Philippians 2, 10 through 11 says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, in verses 9, we're going to see of Psalm 2, the authority of the king. When he says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And what we see here is that the, God commissioned the Messiah to use whatever force is necessary to subdue the world and to take the inheritance given to him. And what the word shall means is that many will resist and they're going to be shattered by Christ. A king may need to send in his troops to put down an uprising in a, in a rebellious province. And yet, before he does that, he sends the messengers under waving a flag of truce. If they're rejected, he's going to have to use force. And yet that king, we know, is working, is aiming for the good of the nation and hoping that he doesn't have to take such a dramatic step. In the same way, Christ calls people everywhere to repent and to believe. And yes, even now we see what 2 Peter 3.9 says, that God's patience, God is being patient with us, not desiring that any should perish, but that all come to eternal life. And so what we see here is that Christ is proclaiming his identity, his destiny, and even his authority, even during his earthly life. And after the resurrection, Christians preach Jesus in all the world. The apostles announced the news that Jesus is both Lord and Christ in Acts 2.36. After them, every evangelist, every pastor, every teacher, and every Christian has carried on the good news of Christ and him crucified. And when Christ's ambassadors speak, it is Christ himself speaking through them to the world. The church in Ephesus was established by Paul and others. And yet Paul says it was actually Christ speaking through these missionaries in Ephesians 2.17, which says, And he that is Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Christ speaks through messengers that he sends with his word. John Calvin says, As often, therefore, as we hear the gospel preached by men, we ought to consider that it is not so much they who speak, as Christ who speaks by them. And this means that the missionaries, the evangelists, the preachers that Christ raises and that he sends out are fulfilling the proclamation of Psalm 2. 
Christ extends his rule throughout the world by extending his word throughout the whole world. And this is the great missionary impulse and challenge of the church today, to make disciples who make disciples of the risen king. Our assignment as Christians is to carry the message of God's divine determination and Christ's rule to them. It is to proclaim the rule of King Jesus. Now, the fourth point in your bulletin is this, that we're going to consider from Psalm 2, 10 through 12, is a warning to the leaders of the world and a blessing to the righteous. Psalm 2, 10 through 12 says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest you be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2.10, it gives us an invitation when it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be, ruled, be warned, O rulers of the earth. This is an appeal to the mercy and the patience of God as he holds it out his gospel to a rebellious world. After all, the work of the Holy Spirit is to lift up Christ and to draw us to him, which is what these final verses of this psalm are doing. And after the thunder of the iron rod and the crashing pottery of Psalm 2.9, Harry Ironside calls this a very gentle, a very loving, a very tender voice. In fact, what this tender voice is calling us to do is to be sensible, to be wise. He invites you to examine yourself and to consider what God is saying through his word to you. In verse 10, with the words, now therefore, this is not a knee-jerk emotional response the psalmist is wanting us to make a logical conclusion for what we've just studied. We need to come to our senses. God's Spirit, through His Word, is patiently reasoning with us. Psalm 2, 11 through 12 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest you be angry and you perish in the way. And so to respond to God rightly, we need to see His beauty and His goodness so clearly that we respond to Him rightly because we love Him, we treasure Him. And yet we also need to see His terrifying power so clearly that we tremble before His holy, awesome, just majesty. Well, Hamas A. Brackle said, If the Lord Jesus is God, meditation upon Him as such will generate a great reverence in our hearts, for He is almighty to deliver, to keep, and to comfort the soul, as well as usher Him into eternal felicity. How blessed is such a soul which may have the Lord Jesus as His Savior. Christ the King subdues His people to His authority. Redemption restores them to the humble posture of stewardship that is theirs by virtue of creation. And instead of vainly attempting to throw off the reign of God by their own power, by their own technological advances, by Christ's kingship, they are converted to serve the Lord with joyful fear, as we have seen today. Bought with the price, they know that they do not belong to themselves, but they must glorify God in all that they do. And they are being renewed in the image of God, which equips and empowers the people of God to rule as representatives of God. This is an immensely powerful and helpful teaching that we have considered. Because behind it is the Christian view of work and even our possessions, and how it's shaped by the knowledge that Christ is Lord and the heir over all things. And so whether you labor in the home, in agriculture, in financial services, the military, law enforcement, medicine, music, engineering, education, civil government, church ministry, Construction, mining, computer programming, advertising, sales and marketing, information technology, plumbing, athletics, food preparation, uh, the hair industry, the nail industry, the automotive industry, retail, or even some other field that I haven't mentioned. The point is, every object and every person falls under the sovereignty of Christ and exists for the glory of God alone. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Abraham Kuyper said, Oh, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. And there is not a square inch in which the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. 
I, I be, began this study stating that this psalm is going to encourage us. Because, and how it does that is it helps us to see that all of history is not moving willy-nilly. It is moving according to the plan. It is moving according to the purpose. It is moving according to the design of God. God has provided hope, and that hope that God has provided is in God's Son, Jesus Christ. That means our only hope is to embrace Jesus Christ. God has set him on the throne to deal decisively with the world's rebellion that we see. There is no refuge from him. Our only refuge is in the Lord. And yet we also need to understand that Jesus is our greater prophet that is spoken of in Deuteronomy 18.15, that one that would be greater than Moses, that is Jesus Christ. He teaches us the truth. He tells us the truth, and he points us to this reality that we're going to be talking about here in just, for just a few minutes. And that is that Jesus is the priest that's greater than Aaron, who can alone can carry away our sins through his death and resurrection. Hebrews 14, 15 tells us that he is a very present help in time of need. And what that means is in the midst of our trials, in the midst of the situations of our lives, he is a very present help. And yet Jesus, as we've considered today in from Psalm 2 is also our king. His rule is orchestrating all of history according to the design, the plan, and the purpose of God. What that means is Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. He provides not only the way to know God, but he himself is God, fully God, fully man. He has set his king on the throne. And that means amid the chaos of our world, amid the cha- many challenges and the difficulties that, that our world faces, there is hope. And we are to carry forth that hope, the hope that we have because of Christ. It was not a hope that, that we deserved. We did not deserve it. And yet God sent forth his son to pay the penalty. He came under a rescue mission, under the sentence of death, to pay for the penalty that you and I justly deserve in our place, and for our sin, and to be buried and rise again. And not only did he do these realities, which alone is enough, but he's also our mediator. He's also our intercessor. He's also our high priest, and he is a soon-returning king. What that means is, in the midst of the challenges and the difficulties of our lives, we can trust the Lord. He is good. He's holy. He's just. He's perfect in all of his ways. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 tell us to trust in the Lord and to lean not on our own wisdom. In all of our ways, acknowledge him. It's a simple reminder. It's a powerful reminder. As you hear the news, as you listen to the news, remember, remind yourself, this world is not your home. If you are in Christ, Jesus has said in John 14, 26, he goes to prepare a place for you. That place is is your real home, where your Savior, your King, is right now interceding for his own. What this also means is, if you do not yet know Christ, you are under the wrath of God. There is no hope for you, and your King stands, the King, the only King, the only way to God. You will not go to heaven. That way is barred unless you repent and believe and put your trust in this king, in this hope, in this greater priest. You will perish everlastingly. And so if you have not repented and put your trust and hope in Christ, I plead with you on the basis of Acts 16.31 to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. And yet if you are a child of God, I plead with you. In the midst of your challenges, in the midst of the ongoing conflicts of our day, the wars and the rumors of wars, do what what verse 1 says. Remember, the nations, they plot. They plot in vain. That's why Psalm 1 tells us very clearly, Psalm 1, 2 tells us to meditate on the law of the Lord, to meditate on the word of God 
to take it home into our hearts and minds and to be grounded and shaped by the truth of God because God, Titus 1-2 says, stands behind, God does not lie. That means that he will always stand behind his word. He will always work according to his word. So trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true, that it is not only true, but that it's reliable, that it's trustworthy, that it's for our life, it's for our godliness, it's, it's binding on our lives. So Lord, help us. Help us to continue to rehearse these truths again and again to our hearts and to our minds with a reminder that, yes, the nations plot, they murmur, rebellion, and yet we are to murmur, we are to remind ourselves of the truth of God's word. We are to remind ourselves of the glory of the character of God that we've considered, that the plans and the purposes and the design of God is for our good, is for our good and for his glory. So help us to order our lives rightly in and by the word of God and to rest in the sovereignty of our king and the help that he alone provides as revealed in his word. We thank you, Lord, that you are sufficient in and of yourself, sufficient in every way, sufficient to meet our greatest need in the midst of our trials and challenges, our good days and our bad days. You are always enough, and that in and of itself is enough. It is enough for us to now lift up our hearts and sing. Sing of your goodness, sing of your love, sing of your beauty, sing of your glory, declaring to ourselves and to one another the majesty of this king, the glory of Christ the Lord. And may we not only do that today, but may we rehearse it uh, as we go Monday through Saturday as well. And then as we come together, may we again sing and preach and teach and remind one another and encourage one another as today is the day. We thank you, Lord, that your word teaches us and instructs us of a sufficient Christ and that we can trust you because you, you are a God who is above all. So, Lord, help us now as we respond in worship to respond rightly, to respond as you would have us to do, as you work in our hearts, as you take the word that we've heard. And may our response honor you and bring you much glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.